1998 Sydney to Hobart yacht race was one of the worst on record. After most of the boats had passed Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, an intense low pressure system hit, winds gusting to 170 kilometres an hour and waves larger than 10 metres caused chaos, wrecking many yachts. One of them, Business Post Nyad, was located by the Careflight helicopter 47 nautical miles from Marimbula. The mast was broken, the mainsail was in the water, the yacht was facing 40 to 5 degrees into the wind and the waves because of the drag of the sails in the water. It was rolling and pitching dangerously in the enormous seas. Seven crew members wearing life vests were seen waving from the cockpit and another one person was lying on the floor. The winds at that time were gusting to 110 kilometres an hour with six to eight metre breaking waves. The three crew on board the helicopter decided it was too dangerous to risk uh, to winch directly from the yacht because of the moving deck and the amount of wrecked gear. The yacht's radio wasn't working, so uh, Fromberg, the uh, the man on the helicopter used hand signals to urge the survivors one at a time to jump into the sea attached to a safety line. Now if you were on that yacht you'd want to check that instruction wouldn't you? You want me to jump into the eight metre seas on the off chance that you'll be able to pick me up with the helicopter. You call that a rescue plan? But the sailors didn't have a lot of choice, so as the rescuer was lowered on the winch into the water, he signalled for the first man to jump and swim clear of the yacht. To cut a long story short, he managed to rescue all seven sailors, one at a time. The message about the crazy plan had been sent, the sailors heard the message, they trusted the message and the plan worked. Your present situation looks desperate, but your future is secure. I've got a rescue plan if you trust me. And it's the same with these prophecies from God to his people uh, through Isaiah. He promises a saviour king born of a virgin from Galilee, from the line of David, he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. There are lots more uh, in the other prophets as well and a lot of them are like that message from the helicopter to the wrecked boat The rescue plan is coming. Just trust me. Uh, The messages are designed to give hope. They say, your present situation looks desperate, but your future is secure. I have a rescue plan if you trust me. And that's certainly the case with these incredible promises in Isaiah chapter 9, that a child will be born who will bring light to Galilee, on whose shoulders will be the government and who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But before we look at those promises, let's find out what the problem was. Why Israel needed to be rescued? What's happened that's left the boat of God's people lying broken in the water, stricken, helpless, needing rescue? Well, the answer's in Isaiah chapter 1, the very first verse of the prophecy Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O God, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. O sinful nation, people loaded with guilt, they've forsaken the Lord. In a word, sin, that's the problem. That's the chorus that's repeated through the whole Old Testament. Uh, Chapter 1 continues, the sort of hypocrisy that makes God furious. From verse 13, God says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Uh, Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear it. Your new moon festivals my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The awful image of hands that are lifted up to God in prayer but their hands that are dripping with blood. That's the hypocrisy in God's eyes of someone who offers sacrifices while at the same time pursuing injustice, exploiting the weak and taking bribes. Instead, God God wants hearts that are right. The action means nothing if the heart is wrong. But it's not as if God hasn't already done something about the sin of his people. Much of Israel's suffering has been God disciplining them, correcting them, but it hasn't made any difference. Maybe you have a stubborn child like that. It doesn't matter how often you discipline them, they won't change. Verse 5 of chapter 1, God says to Israel, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your head is injured, your heart afflicted. From the sole of the foot to the top of your head there's no soundness only wounds and welts and open sores. That's a metaphor, of course. They're not physically ruined, but verse 7 tells us what God's done to punish them. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners. God's discipline's being ignored and it's just going to get worse. Isaiah chapter 2, God talks about a day that's coming, the day of the Lord when judgment will be dished out by the bucketful. Chapter 2 verse 12, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty. It's a theme that continues in, by the time we get to chapter 5, chapter 5 verse 25, God says, The Lord's anger burns against his people, his hand is raised and he strikes them down, the mountains shake, the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets, yet for all this his anger is not turned away. God's plan is to call in foreign nations. Uh, In chapter 5 he paints the dreadful picture. Chapter 5 verse 26 He lifts up a banner to the distant nations. He whistles for them to come from the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp, their bows are strung, their horses' hoofs seem like flint, their chariot wheels like a whirlwind, and so on. That's the situation. The storm that Israel needs rescuing from. Ultimately, it was a storm that overtook Judah in 580 BC when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. 
But at the moment it's only a threat. The storm clouds are on the horizon. You see, it's a warning that's designed to lead his people back so that they'll repent, to encourage them to step out in faith and to trust God's rescue plan. So they're the warnings. So what is the solution? What's the rescue plan? Well, it's not just pure punishment. As is always the case with God, there's mercy in the midst of all of this wrath and punishment. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, God says these wonderful words, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. God's offering a choice. If you're willing, if you turn from your sin, then I'll forgive you. I'll make you pure and guiltless and white as snow. It's wonderful good news. It's hard to find good news better than that in the New Testament. It's the wonderful good news, the mercy that God offers sinners. It's funny, you know, some people these days want nothing to do with a God who they see as holy and uh, who punishes sin. But they're not reading the Bible fully, are they? They're forgetting that he's also the God who holds out forgiveness and restoration and life. They're the sorts of promises we need to be pointing people to when they say they don't like the God of the Old Testament who punishes. And because there are some who who make that choice, who, who accept God's offer and choose life, we see that when God punishes, it's It's more about purification or or sifting the good from the bad. Uh, In chapter 1 he he talks about this sifting and purifying. I will turn my hand against you, I will thoroughly purge away the dross and remove all your impurities. He'll punish some and forgive others. I will restore your judges as in the days of old. Uh, You see, it's not complete... Annihilation. It's more about cleansing those who are trusting, restoring the faithful, but rebels will be destroyed. There's two very different consequences. And so we come to the promises, promises that are made to these faithful people, the ones who turn to God in repentance. And those promises are God's incentive to keep pursuing obedience to keep trusting God in the midst of everybody else who's wicked and faithless. It's a reward to hope for, it's the rescue to reach out for. And the first thing God promises is a new kingdom and that comes in in Isaiah chapter 2. God says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will come out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes. They will beat their swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The promise is for a kingdom uh, where other nations will come, uh, not to ransack it, but to actually join with them and to follow God. It will be a kingdom of peace where weapons aren't needed anymore and where God will judge and settle disputes. It's the complete upside down of what Israel is experiencing when Isaiah makes these promises. And you notice it's a, it's a promise that has a purpose attached to it. Uh, what's the, the, the application of all of them? In verse 5 it says, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Those promises have been made. Now let's trust them and walk in the light of those promises. The future di- vision produces practical consequences now. It's, a, it's an incentive, a, a motivation to walk in obedience. And that's what God's kingdom is about. But it's not just a kingdom. God also promises a king. Uh, chapter 9, which uh, Mary read for us. In Isaiah's time, uh, the nations would come rampaging down from the north and it was the northern tribes of Israel who copped the worst of it around Galilee. Uh, But in verse 1 of chapter 9, God promises that Galilee will be honoured instead. They won't be crushed. That a light would dawn in Galilee on those who lived in the shadow of death as the armies came down. And in verse 6, the light that comes from Galilee is described. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. They're wonderful promises we remember at Christmas time of a son born to govern, to rule, raised in Nazareth in Galilee and whose rule would be just and righteous. He'd be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, that's a kingly title. One of the king's jobs was to rule, to, to, to be a judge, uh, to discern right from wrong. And so Wonderful Counselor means that his kingly decisions would be so wise that people would marvel at how wise he was. And his reign would be one of peace. He'd be called the Prince of Peace. And he would sit on King David's throne. Now all of those promises describe an earthly king, but he's more than an earthly king. God promises that his reign would be eternal. And also, he's called, this king, this earthly king is called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Uh, So this king who God promises won't be like other earthly kings. He's otherworldly, out of this world. God promises a new kingdom and a new type of king. It's a wonderful picture. A promise that God gives designed to motivate his people to obey and to live uh, with righteousness. It's a spur to keep trusting God in the midst of wickedness and faithlessness. 
God gave it to his hearers then, to Isaiah, and he also gives it for us today. But I guess the important question to ask is when? When should we expect these things, this new kingdom and this new king? Because I guess what's different about Isaiah's time and today is that Jesus has come, hasn't he? The event that the people in Isaiah's time looked forward to has happened. God kept his promise and sent Jesus and we rejoice in that. But now Jesus has gone. He's returned to heaven. Should we expect a kingdom like chapter 2 and a rule like chapter 9? Should we expect that now or should we only look forward to it when Jesus returns? Well, the answer is yes to both those questions. We talk about the kingdom of God beginning when Jesus comes and we see little bits of Jesus ruling over sickness and over nature and over Satan and ultimately he rules over sin and death and he achieves peace with God. Uh, He has begun the work of bringing peace between nations but it's not complete, it's not finished. The kingdom of God is now but it's also not yet. And that truth is not just something for theology books. We see that truth every day, that Jesus is king now but not yet. Jesus defeated death and we we rejoice in that but Christians still die. Jesus brought peace between nations and people but there's still war. Jesus healed our diseases but there's still sickness and suffering. The kingdom is now but it's also not yet. And so what all of this means is that we're in the same situation as the saints of Isaiah's time. We have God's future vision his promise and so we must persevere, continue uh, at the moment as we wait for it. God's purpose in giving us those promises is to strengthen our faith, to deepen our longing, our hope for the new creation and to live faithfully today. But we're also much better off than Israel because Jesus has come God has delivered on the first part of his promise and so we can trust him uh, more thoroughly to finish the job. We can trust that Jesus will return and bring in his new creation with a new level of peace and a new level of closeness to God. But it's not just the future. The promise in the future has the expectation for us to be doing something now just like Israel, just like uh, Israel where God said, come O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord today as we hope for the future. It's the same for us. God's kingdom now is primarily centred on the church, on God's people. We are where Jesus reigns. We are the people who are at peace with one another. We are the people who are calling those around us to stream to the throne of Jesus. 
And our task as we walk in the light of the Lord is to bring in Jesus' kingdom even more, to make that future vision a reality today. We don't know why God has delayed in sending Jesus back but one of the reasons is so that more and more people will have time to recognise him and his offer until that day to sinners is still come let us reason together though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow. And so as we listen again this Christmas to a description of who God promised Jesus would be and what he would achieve, let's lift him up as king. Let's make Jesus' priorities our priorities. Let's grow his kingdom of peace in our relationships and in our world. And let's do what we can to make justice and righteousness and mercy happen in our world, to right wrongs, to relieve suffering, to offer God's forgiveness and restoration to a broken, ruined world. And we do it because we're motivated by promises like the ones we've seen today that one day God will send his king again to rule his new creation and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Well, amen to that. It began with Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection and we'll see it completed and fulfilled when he returns. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful promises. Even more than that, we thank you for promises fulfilled for Jesus, the King, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, whose kingdom uh, we've begun to see. Help us to walk in the light of the restored relationship we have with you through him so that your kingdom might grow. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.